This is Asia in Focus from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of Asia in Focus brings you in-depth analysis and perspective from our experts in Asia Pacific on the issues that matter most to businesses. Hi, everyone. This is Angela Mancini, partner at Control Risks, and I head the Asia Pacific Markets Group. We're here today to talk about India. India is, as everyone's been seeing in the press, of course, a growing economy, fantastic workforce, low labor costs and low productivity costs, coupled with a skilled workforce, and actually in recent years, as we've seen, geopolitically in a pretty good spot as uh, countries around the region look to find additional supply chain resilience in markets like India uh, to shelter from the storm of various geopolitical positioning that's been going on. So we've just had a whole team from our India practice into Singapore to meet with clients over a period of days to discuss what's happening with India at this point. We've had some people say, you know, quote, the next 10 to 20 years will be golden. And so what we want to cover today is how real is that opportunity? How can investors think about that opportunity? What should they be planning for going forward? Because while it is in certainly a bright market and one of the rare bright markets today globally, it is not an easy market. And though it's improved, it's definitely still a very complex one. So looking forward to discussing this today. India is having elections in April, May 2024. There's a very high likelihood of the same government coming back to power with a strong mandate. Uh, This is likely to ensure policy continuity and predictability, where a lot of the changes that have been brought about by the government in the last few years will get streamlined further. But at the same time, some of the concerns that exist about the concentration of power, religious polarization, and the undermining of institutions are also likely to persist. Along with an incentive space boost to strategic sectors, the government's push for competitive federalism is throwing up varied opportunities and challenges that differ from state to state and from sector to sector. Therefore, investors should study carefully these variations to in their India strategies while looking out for evolving political and regulatory trends in order to remain better placed to succeed in the long run. Those were Aryaman Bhatnagar and Shika Kerr, senior analysts based in our Delhi office. Today, we're going to be discussing with them what we see as the outlook for India and what investors can be looking forward to and what they should be preparing for. So Aryaman, let's start with you. Is this really India's moment and why or why not? Thanks, Angela, for having us on this podcast. I think you covered some of the points in your initial remarks that there are a lot of structural advantages that we see with India whether it's the size of the country or whether it's as recently in the past two, three months, it's been covered in fair detail how we've become the most populated country in the world. So these are structural advantages that have been there for India for quite a few years, if not decades, and India can provide that economy of scale, uh, which very few countries in the world can offer. Uh, But I think what has changed in in recent years uh, that actually uh, put India in a good position to leverage these structural advantages Uh, are three broad factors. The first is a fair degree of political stability and policy continuity, at least at the federal level. Uh, We have a government uh, that is fairly well entrenched in power and is likely to come back to power next year, which ensures that a lot of the steps that the current government has taken uh, in order to improve the business environment, whether it's uh, reducing 
compliances, improving the regulatory environment or expanding uh, the country's infrastructure are likely to improve uh, as, as we move forward in the decade and, and streamline a lot of these uh, processes that are still in the nascent uh, stage. And this is a significant change from last decade and the decade before where we didn't see that level of policy continuity or, or such a stable government uh, at the center in the past. The second factor is where there is a fair degree of economic growth and stable and macroeconomic stability as well. And uh, a lot of the projections for India are extremely favorable where we are seeing 6 to 7% growth over the next few years. And it's not just that India is growing at such a good uh, pace. It's also that India is growing at a much uh, faster pace as compared to some of the other competing markets, be it in Latin America, Southeast Asia, and particularly if you look at the projections for some of the countries in Europe and North America. So from that perspective, India remains in a fairly bright spot. And the final point, which you touched upon as well, which is looking at favorable global uh, headwinds. So not wanting to go too much into it, I think what really uh, puts India in a good position is how it's seeking to leverage those favorable uh, global headwinds. It sees it as an opportunity. Uh, it has put economic and commercial engagement with a lot of its strategic partners in Europe, Indo-Pacific, and with the US at uh, front and center of its strategic engagements uh, with these countries. This is something that perhaps wasn't the case uh, five, six years ago, but is pretty much the case uh, now. And we've seen a lot of conversations around uh, energy transition, uh, um, the manufacturing sector, uh, critical uh, technologies such as semiconductors, where India wants to partner with these countries a lot more. It is encouraging foreign investment in a lot many more sectors. It has liberalized the rules in the last few years and is looking more favorably even towards uh, bilateral free trade agreements with a lot of these partner countries in order to integrate India better uh, with the global supply chains. Okay, so you're describing a situation where the stars are aligning, and that's good news for a lot of investors and corporates that have been operating there in the past and a lot that are also looking to expand or move into there for the first time, given everything that's happening globally. But uh, let me press you, what about religious polarization? You mentioned political stability, but some would say political stability at what cost? And so my question for you, and then we'll also go over to Shika for this as well, is to what extent is the domestic political situation concerning to investors? And are there any other macro type risks that investors should be worried about? Uh, yeah, so I think looking more than just religious polarization, there is been a degree of concentration of power at the federal level. There have been questions about the autonomy of uh, key institutions, be it the judiciary, the media, or law enforcement agencies that certain studies have shown that have been used a lot more against political opposition, for instance, in, in the last 10 years. Uh, and these are trends that are likely to perhaps worsen, uh, and which is obviously a concern for uh, investors, uh, particularly companies that work in the technology space. And we've seen how there has been a lot of blowback uh, for companies that are in the business of creating content, uh, providing a platform for content, uh, that could be critical of the government. Uh, and we've seen how law enforcement agencies have been used against these businesses, or there has been pressure on these businesses to moderate that content in line with what the government deems to be acceptable or not. Some of the regulatory changes that have been brought about in the tech space have also kind of shown that the legal framework could be heading in that direction. And these are obviously concerns for businesses as it can pose uh, reputational risks. 
But more broadly, since you mentioned religious polarization, that is something, again, that, I mean, does touch upon issues such as human rights violations can cause uh, reputational risks for companies uh, that are operating in India, engaging very closely with the government. But there's a flip side to that as well, which says that because we've heard concerns from clients which have raised questions such as whether this means that economic growth in the next five, six years would come at the cost of the government pushing its social agenda ahead. And we don't see that happening. We feel that both will coexist simultaneously, where economic growth will continue to remain a priority for the government for both economic as well as political reasons, whereas the social agenda will also be pursued simultaneously. And Shika, let's turn to you. Are there any other macro risks you think uh, investors should be tracking? Thanks, Angela. Well, as we've already discussed, India's rankings in global indexes that track ease of doing business across the world definitely show India in a positive light. Its rankings have improved over the last five to 10 years, and that has been a result of broad political continuity, sort of lending this government the ability to undertake fairly substantive reforms. These have been in the area of digitizing and reducing compliances and with regards to approval processes, as well as various other regulations that businesses need to adhere to when starting business in the country. But the constant sort of change in regulations has also meant that the country is taking some time to sort of implement and transition to these to these evolving regulatory needs. And that is perhaps one of the broad risks that businesses operating in India are likely to continue to face over the next five to 10 years. The country is also aiming to be a five trillion economy over the next five to 10 years, and its projected growth is coinciding with a large number of substantive changes in the world as well. Uh, For example, we're facing one of the most biggest challenges that of fighting climate change. And so how the country sort of translates from how the country sort of balances energy security with energy, with transitioning to cleaner energy resources is also going to be a key issue of concern. So over the next five to years, as we assume broad political continuity, I think the main things to look out for are the pace at which these reforms are implemented and and sort of bedded into into the regulatory landscape of the country, how the country aims to balance its growth with transitioning to cleaner energy resources, its ability and readiness to respond to challenges posed by accelerated risks of climate change, um, as well as Ariman mentioned, uh, its ability to allow its institutions to function in a democratic manner. We'll return to the conversation with Ariman and Shika shortly. Please do click on the link in our podcast notes to follow our Asia in Focus podcast series, where we'll be bringing regular updates from all across the Asia region. And if you're looking for more such analysis and insights from our experts all over the world, please do visit the Our Thinking section on the Contrarist.com website. And now let's continue with the conversation. So um, as clients have been telling us for many years, India is, again, a great market, and it's getting even brighter from an opportunity perspective, but challenging to work in. And a lot of the issues you just discussed speak to that. But uh, you know, a lot of our clients, as you know, say to us, gosh, it feels like we're operating in 29 countries, uh, <laughs> not one country with just you know some, some regulations that might differ from state to state. It's actually quite significant. Can you talk a little bit about how you see those dynamics playing out, particularly as we look forward into 
um, an environment where some of the challenge you just mentioned from, you know, regulatory landscape changing, having to deal with clean energy transitions, et cetera. How do you see those playing out for clients that are operating there now? Yep, this is an ongoing um, comment that we receive from clients. Well, India is and can be considered to be an economy that is an aggregation of 29 or so sub-national economies that each have their own distinct markings. As a result of that, the operational realities on the ground from state to state are also very different. States vary considerably with respect to their social political realities, their growth trajectories, capital expenditures, sector priorities, as well as the regulatory regimes that govern their, their business and landscape. All of these, of course, have an impact on how businesses are able to operate um, on a pan-India perspective. What also impacts their ability is the center and state dynamics, which also, as a result, um, differ from state to state. This is something that the government has tried to sort of take into account in two ways. One, creating reforms that provide a more sort of level playing field from across state to state, uh, but also this government's agenda of pushing for cooperative and competitive federalism. And that is also sort of aimed at streamlining the business environment more broadly. So in addition to the unified tax regime, for example, one of the things that the government has implemented in recent years is the business reform action plan, which essentially pitches each state in a competitive sort of environment with each other across various indices pertaining to their implementation of uh, federal and state level regulations, their ability to collect tax, social cultural factors, conduciveness to attract foreign investment, and their ability to undertake uh, reforms pertaining to land as well as labor, for example. All of these offer businesses the ability to sort of compete effectively across state to state and manage their investments from a microeconomic perspective as opposed to a broad sort of national landscape. So looking at all that then, last question to help us understand where investors should be looking now, but also really into the future five to 10 years out. Shika, we'll start with you and then move over to Ariman. Is there a silver bullet? What does this look like for investors that are saying, okay, we're operating there now and we're trying to either expand or we're, we're investors that are moving into India for the first time. We want to get a better understanding with, given all the challenges you've laid out, how should we set up an operating model to be most effective five to 10 years down the road? What does it look like now? What does it look like in years to come? Can you talk us through that? And can you add to that a response to clients' questions to us, which include, is this something we can just do alone now? Do we still need strong local partners or can we go it alone? Majority in India typically has long gestation periods. This is in part, of course, because of the evolving regulatory landscape, but also because there still continue to be considerable challenges that the country faces with regards to its bureaucracy. In addition to that, we've also seen a maturing of domestic competition across a number of key sectors, um, which is also increasingly becoming a consideration for foreign investors, particularly, again, in sectors such as renewable energy, consumer goods, um, warehousing, and power. So as the government sort of continues to 
undertake these reforms and the domestic uh, competitive environment also changes. Some of the things that foreign investors should be looking at from a five to 10 year perspective is really understanding the sector and the very, very local market that they are operating under. So incorporating careful studies of state level realities, sector level realities down to the very basic uh, area of operations is, is one of the things we are continuing to advise our clients on. And Aryaman, what's your perspective? Not much to add to what Shikha said that I think it's important to know, and we've kind of done these projects in, in recent times where we are looking at the right state, the right partner, and the right opportunity within a particular sector. I mean, that's essentially the nutshell of the approach that businesses should take. Uh, because uh, you mentioned that, you know, can companies go alone or do they need a local partner? And I think that's very important because you have certain sectors where it's possible, where you've had uh, examples and precedents of foreign companies, for instance, doing really well. So, for, the, for instance, in India, you have the automotive as well as the electronic sector where you've had many success stories over the last uh, two decades uh, or even more recently of how foreign companies have come in alone and done well. At the same time, you have other sectors where companies have done really well, foreign companies have done really well, have established a predominant position such as in e-commerce or in the technology space, but they have been facing pushback in recent years from regulatory agencies, from local conglomerates. So it's very important to know that there are opportunities for foreign companies to go alone, but it can be very sector specific. Uh, and at the same time that in certain sectors, uh, where you have local conglomerates that are wanting to do really, uh, are trying to push their way in, uh, those opportunities could come with a lot of risks as well. And at the same time, it's something that Shikha said that it's very important to know the sector well or to do a due diligence on the sector as well. So you have sectors where from the outside, it may seem like the telecom sector, for instance, from the outside, it seems that you have only a limited opportunity for growth if you're a new entrant. Uh, but if you look closely, there are a lot of subsectors within there where there is a demand for foreign companies to come in, whether it's telecom towers or whether it's small cells or it's other infrastructure that really enables the telecom industry. So that's just one example to show that how uh, it is important to know what those opportunities are within a particular sector where foreign companies can actually come in and do well. Okay, great. So what I'm hearing you both say is that from a broad perspective, we've got, you know, stronger political stability, stronger economic stability. Of course, India is um, having a, a good moment right now as it relates to global headwinds or the lack thereof as it relates to geopolitics and, and is, a, is, again, a bright spot for um, supply chain expansion and uh, diversification. But as always, the devil's in the detail, right? So we, we've known for years that India has been a challenging operating environment. It sounds like it's improving with things like um, the competitive federalism that we've outlined here, but it always comes down to what sector you're in, what state you're in, who, you know, have you done your stakeholder mapping? Have you assessed uh, whether or not you need a partner, and if so, who those partners should be. And and that's really what can make or break investments both now and looking forward. So with that, it just leaves it to me to say thank you so much for your comments. This is definitely a market that we'll continue to track, and I'm sure we'll come back to again in, in future podcasts soon because there's so much there uh, in terms of interest from clients and so much opportunity that everyone's gripping right now. Thank you very much. And um, 
Thank you to our listeners for tuning in. That's all for today's Asian Focus. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe to our podcast channel so that you can receive all new episodes just as soon as they're released. And if you're looking for more such analysis and insights from our experts right all over the world, please do visit the Our Thinking section on the controlrisk.com website. Thank you. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of Asia in Focus, be sure to subscribe and make sure to check out our other podcasts as well. All of our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com.